welcome again to the Filmy Mentries podcast. This is episode 13. It's Jamie Benning here speaking to you from my home here in southeast London. So for episode 13, I'm going back to an interview I did in March of 2018 with Paul Blake, who was the guy that ended up playing Greedo in the original Star Wars. I originally met Paul when I was invited to a Star Wars trilogy screening at the BFI here in London by Toby Philpott, he of Jabba's left hand. Um, we went there together and watched the films and I got to go in the, the green room and meet uh, Garrick Hagen, who played Biggs, and Paul Blake, uh, who played Greedo. I mentioned to Paul that I'd previously done an interview with Toby and would he be interested in doing something similar. So a few months later, we did just that and we spoke over Skype. I did intend to make it into a video painting the pictures that he was talking about, but I really didn't have enough material to do that. I have released this previously on my Patreon page, so it's here as a bonus extra. This is not being charged to my patrons. This is a bonus episode, and I figured for episode 13, unlucky for some, I probably shouldn't have a stuntman interview that I was hoping to have in uh, Ben Dimmock. But Ben's going to give me an interview coming towards the end of the year, about middle of December, so hopefully that will be one of the December podcasts. In the meantime, here's my chat with Paul, and I started by asking him about the fact that I'd heard that Anthony Daniels, aka C-3PO, had actually helped him get the gig on Star Wars. Yes, um, that's true. Anthony Daniels did... Uh was very kind, I suppose, in in all those years ago in 1976, because uh, we were working together um, for the BBC in a in a kids program called Jack and Ori, and uh, it was a it was a Christmas special called The Christmas Cherries, and I've been trying to find it ever since, and it's one of the few that I can't actually find. So either I was going through some kind of strange parallel world experience at the time, or the BBC have lost records of that particular Christmas special. But anyway, uh, Anthony and I were, were both in it. I played a sort of minstrel, and uh, I think he was a prince. Uh, and after um, doing that, he rang me up one night at, at home and... Um, said i'm doing this uh sci-fi film uh would you and the directors asked me if i know of any other actors who'd be interested in in doing it would would you be interested and i sort of was desperate for a cup of tea and uh needed the money uh so i said well thank you very much yes i I'd, I'd love to um to go along an audition for them so that's exactly what happened so about a few days later i think it was i can't remember all this in great detail but it must have been a, um, a couple of weeks later i found myself at uh at elstree studios very early in the morning and i think i've told this story many times now but uh, i walked out onto uh, a sound stage which was quite impressive because like like everybody else a sci-fi film in 1976 uh was possibly going to be um attack of the killer tomatoes so i thought i was going to be in a b movie uh so i wasn't that um enamored with going out to do this thing but uh when i walked out on set it was quite impressive because the whole of um the, the sound stage was covered in kind of sand and had massive arc lights and and a, a painting of the millennium falcon up one end with a few mock-outs mock-ups of um of gun turrets and uh there was one bloke there, 
because it was very early in the morning and I hadn't been able to have breakfast or anything. So I went up to him and said, look, I'm just come from Central Town. It's taken me an hour and a half to get here. It's freezing morning. You couldn't get me a cup of coffee, could you? So he went off, got me a cup of coffee. And I said, you don't know um, anything about this movie that uh, some sci-fi film or other that they're filming here. I'm, I'm supposed to be seeing some bloke called George. And he said, yeah, I, I, I'm George Lucas. So he got <laughs> he got me a cup of coffee and offered me the job, which is um, extraordinary, even to this day. So I'm very grateful to Anthony Daniels. And I'm also very grateful to George Lucas's barista skills. <laughs> That's brilliant. I, I'm chuckling away here. I have to mute my own microphone then, so I'm not spoil the recording. That's great. Um, I actually spoke to a fan last night who's got a bulletin. That's sheet. my fan then. <laughs> How is he? He's got a call sheet. Well, it's not a call sheet. It's a bulletin sheet that says um, Friday, February the thirteenth, nineteen seventy-six. Wow. Paul Blake to be fitted with mask with Stuart Freeborn. <laughs> Amazing God. that this document still still survives. So, you met Stuart Freeborn. What what was that original fitting like? Did you know what you were walking into here? No, I had been um, I had been sent a script by Lucasfilm, uh, which I, incidentally I've still got, which is incredible, really, because it's uh, sort of a massive script pink pages full and full of, uh, of of dialogue which you have no idea what's going on but like every actor when you get a script I sort of flick through to my bit it's like an actor uh, getting offered Hamlet and you flick through mm, yes that's good on, on every page unfortunately Greedo wasn't on every page and he didn't have a name even then so I, I flicked through this script and got to the little bit the few scenes that I'd, I'd been given a bit of dialogue in and, and read the dialogue and immediately thought, yeah, this is a great little cowboy scene. And I read it to my then girlfriend and she thought, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty cool. So we had an idea of, of, of being an alien, but as to what alien, I had absolutely no idea. So I turned up to, um, again, to, I think it was, was at Elstree, the fitting, uh, you had what was called a life mask done. And, and I think it was Stuart who did it. It might have been his, one of his assistants, or it might have been his son. Even. It certainly wasn't his wife. It was definitely uh, a male, I remember, but it might have been Stuart. But anyway, they were charming and ushered me into a, a small room and um, stuck plaster of Paris all over the front of my face and then all over the back. And when that hardened, they sort of pushed that together and uh, poured India rubber in. So you get this sort of India rubber mask that fits over the shape of your head and and fits pretty well actually uh so once that was done uh, i didn't think much about it at the time because i I'd, I'd also <laughs> i think that year i'd also played the honey monster once on a <laughs> on a promotional tour so i had some experience with masks I, I hesitate to say that was the only other mask carriage i ever played in 40 years of being an actor but that was the green mask of Greedo uh, or the basis for it. And then I think Stuart then took it away and, and built up the uh, little bits and pieces on top of it and the spiky head and then coloured it in green and stuck two ping pong balls on the eyes. Um, and again, a sort of seminal story. I, I, how much of this was true, but I did hear, uh, it might have been through um, fans, or it might have been through Lucasfilm itself, that Stuart was stuck for the, for Greedo, what to do with Greedo, because uh, I was only the alien in the original script, didn't even have a name. And uh, he was stuck with uh, with what 
to do for Greedo because he'd done so many other characters uh, in the cantina sequence. So he was running out of ideas. But then he'd seen it the, the day before the deadline hit. Um, he saw a, an advert for bird's eye peas and the advert had a little sing song pea uh, that bounced around. And uh, I think that's where he got the idea for Greedo. But that, that may be a seminal story. But anyway, I kind of like that. And, uh, and that's how my mask uh, came about. And I didn't then see it again until that first day of, of filming when I turned up at Elstree and, and my head was on a table with about 40 other characters from the cantina. All, of course, um, we all tried on each other's heads, but not for very long because most people think they were boiling hot and you couldn't get them off. That's not true. They were perfectly easy to wear. It was just that they stank to high heaven. So you very quickly took them off as it was somebody else's dribble inside your mask that you didn't really you didn't really want to have much to do with so that's how my little um my little head came about but uh, before that i had no idea of uh, of what was going to be required and it wasn't that pleasant a process i mean i think later on they stuck some straws up you know so you could breathe but i don't even think i had that i do remember a sort of uh, a kind of uh plastic like solution that they stuck in between your face and the plaster of Paris to, to, to make it a little easier for the whole process to happen. But it was neither very pleasant nor unpleasant, although I'd take that a hundred times if uh, given the choice against what would happen today, which is you'd have it built up from your body and uh, be in makeup for four or five hours. So, yeah, so that's how Greedo's head came about. Brilliant. I've heard so many little stories about Stuart Freeborn's workshop yeah. when I spoke to Dave, all that stuff, all those chemicals yeah. involved. <laughs> God knows what they were laying on your face. Um, <clears throat> so once you then got on set, did George Lucas give you much direction uh, about how he wanted the character to be portrayed? Uh, George Lucas, as a director, um, wasn't uh, in in the modern sense a sort of hands-on director he wouldn't be at you with every um every little movement or every line or every bit of the scene he was very much um he was very much a company man in that he was very clever in getting the the right people around him so he had a great lighting cameraman he had a great first uh, ad he had a wonderful crew so they all knew what they were doing and um so they would do setups for him and george would look at it and think yeah I like that or no I don't like that and and say a few words and things would change so he was very much in the background of all that and in those days we didn't have digital um uh screens or uh, anything to monitor what was going on there was only one I think there was one camera connected to a screen that George would be looking at about 20 or 30 feet behind uh, the Panavision uh, camera and uh so from that point of view he wasn't he wasn't intrusive, I suppose, in the process. But being a, a sort of smart ass, arrogant young actor, I, I do remember saying to him, uh, George, George, um, how would, how do you want me to play this uh, this alien with you know great intensity? I asked him, and he looked at me for about a minute and uh, said, "Well, uh, I I played like they do in the movies," <laughs> which <laughs> which I thought was apt. Uh, advice given the inanity of the question on how to play a, a bug-headed alien you know but he was certainly um he was certainly wonderfully amusing and very dry 
about some of the um, uh, the sequence, and uh, I, he was he was a charming man too. So you didn't sort of uh, feel you weren't in in capable hands. I mean, I know various since talking to various other actors who were involved in the very first movie. I think everybody had the the same experience, and of course George was under a huge amount of pressure then in that he'd he'd borrowed the money for that first film so the uh, the money men and the producers were on his back all the time and i know he was having a hard time during a lot of the filming so he was um, he was pretty charming considering i was just a um, a snotty nosed a bit part actor coming in for what i thought was only going to be five minutes which would then end up on the cutting room floor and i'd never see or hear the movie again which actually at the time was fine because again we all thought it was going to be attack of the killer tomato <laughs> yeah, I, I guess George must have had an idea that it might look silly on set, but he had this vision in mind with all of the sound effects and the dubbing and everything and the music that would uh, that add to the final product. Yeah, of course. And, and he invented Industrial Light and Magic for that to happen uh, and must have had some image, as you say, in his mind about uh, what those effects would be like. Again, remember, we'd only really had... Um, uh, Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts and that sort of thing uh, to compare what might be happening in, in Star Wars, even if there was the money that Jason and the Argonauts had had, had. So we had no idea of the uh, amazing effect of those um, uh, early digital bits and pieces. Um, so you walked onto the Cancina set that morning. I think yeah. it was the summer of 76, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. The hot, the hot, hot summer. Um my mother was giving birth to me at that very moment. Uh, <laughs> and um, so you, you, you were on the cantina there working with a soon-to-be megastar. What was your impression of Harrison Ford? Um, and what was it like working with him? Um, well, I, I, again, I didn't know much about Harrison or Han Solo as a, as a character other than what I'd um, read in the, in the original script. So I had no idea who the actor was who was going to be playing it. But what I do remember is, uh, as you say, walking out on, on the, the set of the cantina, which was the only real set in the, the whole of the first Star Wars movie. So it was interesting uh, because you could actually sit in the booths and watch other bits of action happening, which was fascinating because that was it, all those other aliens, which you don't really see in the movie, um, were pretty amazing and they obviously a lot of work had gone into those and the puppets too but when i walked out from my first little bit which i thought wouldn't end up in the movie um and when harrison first walked out on st stage everybody on set looked up and uh, straight gay whatever thought my god who is that handsome bloke walking out we were so jealous and a lot of us were english and a lot of the extras obviously were english too um we're all in costumes of stormtroopers or had heads on and we looked up at this incredibly handsome young guy thinking my god he's uh, he's certainly going to be he's going to look okay in this film if nothing else but uh, no, we, uh, I'd never heard of Harrison before. And it was only later on that I found out he'd done um, American Graffiti. But he was, uh, he was like, um, he was like uh, Mark and Carrie in that he was, he was pretty charming and, and uh, pretty nice to, uh, to, to spend a few, few days with. And uh, he was also pretty 
professional then. I think he was eager, obviously, to make an impression because he was leading the film. And uh, he was one of the lead actors. And it was his first major break. So he was absolutely... Um, on point to get it right, uh, both in his interests and from the point of view of um, of, of this of, of Star Wars too. So yeah, he was pretty cool, I must say. But I'm very jealous about how he looked. <laughs> well, of course I was. Uh, that's why. I... Yeah, exactly. You've seen you've seen the pictures with me without the mask on. I tell everybody that Harrison insisted on getting the mask on me because he couldn't deal with such a handsome actor in the same sequence. So it might have been a different kettle of fish if I hadn't worn the Greedo head in the now iconic scene. There I would have been, Jamie. <laughs> see a couple of the... It's like a part of the early cut of that cantina scene. It's all in black and white because it was presumably just a, a dupe. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can see you performing in a mask. And I've also got another behind-the-scenes shot that's sort of focused on Harrison. I think it says take six. Um, <laughs> and Harrison's <laughs> about to shoot you under the table. And Were you yeah. wearing the mask when he was doing those singles, or did you have chance no, to have no, the mask no. off? No, no, no. George is very kind. I mean, he let me stand behind camera and just read the script um, to Harrison to do his close-ups. And to be fair to Harrison, he he did the same to me, even though I was in the mask and sitting sort of just looking directly into camera. But that at that point where Greedo dies, I mean, all the I have to mention the hand shot first thing, but in the, originally nobody shot at all, of course. All that was added on later by Industrial Light and Magic. So I had no idea how I was actually going to die. I thought, oh, maybe it'll be a little a squib, because even in 76 they had um, detonated squibs, which would blow a hole in your chest or your arm if, they, if the jelly knife guard put too much explosive in the, in the squib. But they decided to stick a dummy uh, in at the point uh, of where Greedo actually dies and then fill it full of explosive and blow it up and then put the costume back on me so I could physically fall forwards or backwards or whatever. I, I originally thought um, George was going to get me to do a sort of backwards fall because of a blast from a ray gun would push you naturally backwards. But uh, because <laughs> because the costume was taken immediately off the dummy after it had exploded and was on fire, it was so hot still smouldering and they then poured acid onto the back of it to make it steam even more uh, under the camera that i decided to die pretty quickly falling forward so so i ended that scene pretty quickly i didn't know that i didn't know about the acid that's cool that's interesting to know well if you look in the shot yeah you can, you can see, see it steaming, steaming away yeah, yeah yeah um you had quite a lot of lines to learn there in that scene as well um so I did. You, you would have had from February to around May or June then, I guess. To, to yeah, but those it, lines. I think I was working, I think I was doing um, a play during that time as well. So I wasn't, I mean, any movie, if you're not playing the lead, um, you're only ever doing three or four uh, lines at a time. So you can virtually learn them the night before or, or even on the day sometimes. It, it depends, obviously, how big it was. But yeah, you're right. The, the, the little scene did take home, I think did take a, a day or so uh, to learn, particularly as I learned it in fluent Rhodian and, and now am speaking totally in Rhodian most of the time to my family. Well, they thought I've spoken double Dutch for the last 40 years anyway, so Rhodian makes no difference. But it was very hard to learn the uh, Rhodian. <laughs> you believe that, Jamie? You believe, you believe anything. Yeah. <laughs> I did see in one interview you mentioned that 
that scene was a bit of a rush job late on a Friday. Um, That's right. Yeah. I I assume that my little bit in the movie would be the bit with um, the original Jabba the Hutt, Declan Mulholland, who was a lovely little Irish actor. And uh, we had a couple of scenes together, uh, at least where I was just playing the henchman, um, virtually just uh, standing behind him or walking up and giving him a bit of um, information about Han Solo, uh, which was all underneath the Millennium Falcon, or at least the mock-up of the Millennium Falcon. And I thought that was going to be the main bit that I would be seen in with with Declan. Uh, And that took quite a few days to film. Um, And then George, uh, I don't think was, it wasn't that he wasn't happy with Declan, because Declan was rather good as Jabba the Hutt, but I think he'd seen Jabba as as that now uh, iconic puppet that you see in in his mind and so obviously all those sequences had to go so we were only left with the then now iconic scene um which we didn't know then so i don't we didn't spend all that much time in doing it to get it right but i think like all those things um when your back is against the wall, both financially and in time sequences, you tend to pull out the best <laughs> the best bits of work. So looking back on it now, uh, it's a miracle. I don't think it took Harrison very long to do it, to be quite honest. Um, and like all those other scenes that he did in um, Indiana Jones and uh, the rest of Star Wars, he did ad-lib uh, quite a bit, Um and his ad libs were very good. I don't think he ad libbed much in, in our little scene, but uh, certainly it wasn't the scene that I thought was going to finish up in the movie. So, again, very lucky. Brilliant. Do you know which uh, Rodian you are under the standing under the falcon there? Yeah, that's that's je- definitely me, the one um, nearest the action. I did say to George, George, because that now appears after I die in the cantina. <laughs> Look very carefully and you'll see me die in the cantina and then you'll see Greedo in the next scene underneath the Millennium Falcon um, with next to um, to Harrison. And uh, I said, George, I think that's that's me there in that scene. And I've just died. He said, oh, no, they all look the same, Rodians, and wear the same clothes. It's a very poor planet. <laughs> and do you, do you know if that was... There's a scene I've got of Alec Guinness wielding the lightsaber at the bar, chopping the guy's arm off. And yeah. there's, a, there's a Rodian that leans in and sort of looks around. No, I don't think that was me. Uh, to be, I, I can't remember. I know there were a couple of extras uh, dressed in almost the same gear, so that could easily have been one of them. I, uh, to be a- absolutely uh, honest, I, I really can't remember. It could have been me, but I, I don't remember doing that. Uh, but then 40 years ago, I don't remember what I did last week, let alone what I did 40 years ago, so uh, it could equally have been me. But don't... Don't hold me to that. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't remember what I was doing yesterday. Um, (laughs) So I saw you also mention in an interview about a deleted scene where you had a bit of a shootout with Harrison. Can you talk a little bit about that? That again was in the. Um, I think that was in the uh, the scene with with Declan. In that I remember having a sort of mock gunfight with Harrison uh, underneath the Millennium Falcon. And then a whole pile of, of um, stormtroopers come running out, uh, uh, and we we turn and fire on them. Uh, unless that's a complete figment of my imagination, which I don't think it was. I think we actually spent a, a morning on doing that. Um, but yes, and that wasn't 
scene in the uh, in the final cuts of, of any of the uh, even the deleted scenes. So yeah, there were there was quite a little bit uh, originally. I guess I get the impression that George was experimenting with a few things. You know, you got the Greedo in the bar scene, you got the Jabber scene. This potential shootout, as you describe it, um, maybe he was just giving himself some options because I know. When he worked on American Graffiti, he was very well known for just shooting everything, yeah, and then yeah. making it in the edit. Um, yeah, so that's, I that's exactly, yeah, I think that's exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened with us. I think um, uh, I, I know talking to some of the other guys who were around, uh, particularly to Peter Diamond, who was the stunt director at the time, and and uh, Peter was. T- I said, "Did you do any stuff that uh, didn't appear in the film, Peter?" He said, "Oh God, yes, we did." so much stuff and he told me about a character that he played called the electric light bulb man where he, he wore a costume that was virtually uh, about two two three hundred light bulbs all of which lit up and uh, he was going to do some sequence with that but of course as soon as they all lit up it nearly burned <laughs> burned him to a cinder so <laughs> i think they very soon realized that that character wasn't going to fly but yeah i'm i'm sure that's exactly what happened that george filmed so much stuff that he still got to this day at Skywalker Ranch. I know there was, as I say, the original script looked like the telephone directory. It had thousands of uh, of scenes, which actually I should have a look at. And uh, I haven't I haven't really read it in full from, from that day to this. Yeah, like I was looking at some of the scripts last night, preparing some of these questions. And I think there's a there's a fourth draft where you're just mentioned as alien. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was just an alien, even on the call sheet. I, it just says alien. I think it was only later when George realised that he was actually going to include the scenes in the movie that he he decided to give Greedo a name. And I don't know where Greedo came from. Yeah, I'm sure George can Declan tell you. Holland says, doesn't he? Uh, why did you have to fry poor Greedo like that? Yes, um, yes. I managed to reconstruct that scene because um, it's never been shown in its entirety, that scene. And they, there was some on a CD-ROM from the 90s and there was some on E-Entertainment in the States and there was some Yes. On, and I put it all together. Um, wow. To this day, it's the only way you can see it. Luxem was never released it. Um, oh, yeah. So when did Greedo re-enter your life? Well, that's a, that's a very poignant well, pertinent question. Um, I think for a good 10 years, he didn't have much effect. I mean, like, I didn't go to the premiere. I was actually working on something else, but I was away on holiday about a year after the movie was released. So it must have been 78 or somewhere with um, my then girlfriend, now wife. uh, And we were in Greece and we were on a beach somewhere and uh, some some guys came up to us and we were chatting to them and they were American and, and they said, what do you do? And we said, oh, well, uh, we're actors. And they said, oh, yeah, have you have you done anything, you know, that we know? And I said, God, no, <laughs> absolutely not. I said, I've done a, quite a bit of theatre and a few bits of TV and uh, I mostly work on stage. Oh, I did a, I did a movie about a, about a couple of years ago uh, it was called Star something, uh, Blue Harvest originally, I think. And then it, they said, you were in Star Wars? And I said, um, uh, is that what it's called? Is it Star? <laughs> so I only found out on a beach uh, about a year later that it was um, going to be a little more than uh, ending up on the cutting room floor. So after about 
two months and when we got back from Greece, I went to Leicester Square and, and saw it in the Odeon Leicester Square with the, the rest of the punters. And like everybody else, I was just completely uh, blown away once the Star Destroyer goes over your head and on and on and on. And I think that captured my attention from that point. And then I was so excited uh, thinking, well, actually, I'm, I think I'm in this movie. <laughs> but when it came to my bit and I was actually in the scene, I jumped up and said, that's me. Uh, which to this day I am ashamed of, but uh, I would probably do the same thing again. So it didn't have much effect for four or five years, I think, because the actual, obviously it was a success straight away and everybody loved the movie. And then they got into gear into making um, Empire and Return of the Jedi. uh, And it was going to sort of obviously have a life after A New Hope. Uh, but it didn't have that much effect on me until I think I was working with Jeremy Bullock. I, I did um, a play with with uh, Jeremy for for an actor called Derek Nimmo, who was a sort of well-known uh, TV star at the time. And Derek ran a, a company that toured all over the world. And actors used to like to do it because we went to beautiful places and stayed in wonderful hotels and just had to do a, a, a little play in the evenings. So and I found myself doing one of these with Jeremy. And um, he said to me one, he said, uh, Paul, you were in Star Wars, weren't you? And I said, uh, yeah, 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 I was. He said, why don't you do conventions? And I said, what's a convention? So it was it was Jeremy that got me um, involved on the whole convention circuit and sort of more involved with Star Wars than, than I then was. I was just sort of trying to carry on working as a jobbing actor at the time, really, and, and continuing to work uh, mostly abroad and the rest of the world. I spent quite some time in Hong Kong uh, doing uh, theatre there and doing TV and uh, the odd little uh, commercials and bits in films and things. Um, so really, it was Jeremy that got me into all that uh a bit later on. And at that point, I realized that Star Wars was going to have something uh, of an effect on my life. But then 10 years after that, when the directors and the uh, casting directors and the agents had all grown up with Star Wars, then they found it a lot more interesting. And we used to get a lot more inquiries because of being in that original movie. But it did take a long time. Great. It's like a Nice little retirement plan now, I would imagine, for you. Exactly, yeah. It's better than uh, legal life or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes, it certainly is. I can only thank Star Wars for the the gift that continues to give. Yeah, amazing. Um, (laughs) One thing I wanted to ask about was, um, obviously there are some of the scenes with the more articulated mask, and that was Maria de Aragon shot in. Yes, that was me. You, no, that's you, right. You've met with Maria, though. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. I Well, for a long time, uh, I think we only ever assumed that there was only ever one of us as as Greedo until um, I did meet Maria. And, and I said, oh, you did. Did you play uh, Greedo? And she said and then she explained about uh, them, them doing the retakes later on in uh, America about a year after I'd finished. And uh, then I realized, of course, that the mask that I'd had done was never going to be used as um, uh, in close-up because none of it worked. So uh, that's how I think Maria came to be uh, doing those reshoots because uh, the articulation of the ears and the the nose all happened much later than when I filmed it. Uh, And I think that was the problem that George was left with when he cut 
the whole Jabba the Hutt sequences that um, he was really only left with that uh, now iconic scene and certainly not enough close-ups of either um, uh, Greedo uh, when he speaks or Harrison when he, he responds. And so obviously... That was what Maria did, I think, about a year later. But yeah, I hadn't um, hadn't really thought about it much because, of course, a lot of movies that you do, uh, especially if you're not playing the lead or or secondly, if you're in a, a sort of one or two scenes, um, generally you think, oh well, I'm not going to be in that film. That's going to end up on the cutting room floor. So uh, I I kind of didn't give it much thought until much later on. Until then, I met Maria and 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 uh, we we did a signing together actually. But yeah, occasionally we we bump into each other and exchange. Uh, a few stories but i haven't seen her for a long time now so i hope she's still all right i made a feature length sort of behind the scenes thing on star wars in back in when was it 2011 called star wars begins and i found that photo of maria in the greedo costume with her heels on yeah i used to tell people that was me of course but on on friday's uh, you know, everyone needs a hobby. It's <laughs> fine one day a week, um, but, you know, more than one day a week, uh, no. And I find the heels just uncomfortable to wear at the weekend. <laughs> that's how I used to get away with it anyway. But now, of course, yeah, that's obviously uh, obviously Maria. Yeah. It's amazing how this film has lasted. I mean, to you back then, I presumably it was just a, another job. You'd just come off Jack and Ori, you were doing Star Wars and then moving on to something else. It it still amazes me to this day that I'm still interested in it. I mean, it amazes us, Jamie. How do you think we feel? Yes, it is quite extraordinary. And it's the question, I think it's the most, uh, apart from who shot first, it's it's the most asked question is is why the longevity of Star Wars? Why? uh, And it is a difficult question to answer. I think Star Wars has sort of gone into that category of both not only a sort of film um history of cultural history now and and so many people invested so much into it in their childhoods and kind of grew up with it in the same way as we people of my generation my age grew up with um the wizard of oz and uh and the bogart films and and the hitchcock stuff uh which to me were the sort of the iconic films at the time is that star wars has, has gone into that realm now because it's certainly one of the few films worldwide that you mentioned those two words in any language you can be in lapland or you can be in uh, Vietnam or Venezuela and people know what you're talking about if you just say those two words which is extraordinary really um, for any movie to to achieve that status and I think it's due to the the fact that George unashamedly drew on um, uh, the history and the mythology of, of the of nationalities and, and uh, countries and uh, that mythology has never gone away you know the the constant uh, interplay between good and evil with good sometimes being in the ascendant and sometimes with evil being in the ascendant and the great characters like Darth Vader and the great good characters like uh, Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, Princess Leia and Harrison. I mean, those characters can be seen in in any other mythology you'd like to name. And I, I mean, I also think he owes a little bit to to Lord of the Rings in in uh, the Star Wars saga. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's it's uh, hung around for so long. And they were wonderfully good movies when they were filmed, and and they still stand up to this day. It, certainly, when I see 
I don't think I've ever sat down to to see them all the way through from that point to now. But the bits that I constantly see, I'm I'm amazed at how well they still stand up to the passage of 40 years. And I can see them being around for another 20 or 30 years, maybe maybe even longer, certainly until I'm uh, pushing the daisies up. And incidentally, I have to say, on my tombstone, it will say, even... <laughs> Even though I've done every hardly, I've appeared in every Shakespearean play. I've played Eugène Onegin. I've been uh, uh, Charles Swan in Proust's La Recherche du Temps Perdu. I've been in every theatre across this country, in many theatres across the world, quite a few other TV bits and pieces. On my tombstone, it will say, here lies Greedo. He shot first. But on the back, it'll say, or did he? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you talk about being in all those different roles one of my best mates is in uh one of the main parts in hamilton on the west end at the moment oh wonderful um, yes he's just he got that gig i mean it's incredible that he's he's got to that point the guy, and the guy who played it in america won the tony for it you know and he's up for the yeah. movie at the moment he's a massive star wars fan <laughs> it's, in, it's in fact how we we sort of uh joined forces as it were no pun intended and um, Fantastic. he uh, he says, oh, God, I'd love to be in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> when I told him I was interviewing you, he said, oh, that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so well, send him my regards and I say I too. have every admiration for him being in Hamilton because it is fantastic. Oh, it's incredible. But no, you're it? right. I, in my queues at some of the um, conventions, I've had the most extraordinary people. I had I looked up once and there was Brian May waiting for an autograph. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's quite extraordinary the people uh, who I think it's because they shared a childhood with us that that's why it means quite so much to them and that childhood uh, resonates forever doesn't it those those childhood feelings never go away so very lucky absolutely one uh, last question I just meant to ask you did you were you asked to play any other parts? Because I know some people doubled up as different characters in the cantina, for instance. And No, once see? they got rid of me, George couldn't wait to get me out of the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, the bastards. They never offered no, Actually, that's not quite true. I did have a chat with the, um, with the lovely producer of um, uh, The Force Awakens, Brad Burke, uh, just before they... Um, they were halfway through filming, and I'd sent him a, a message saying... Um, uh, good luck with the with the, with the new movie. I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. And uh, and he rang me up here one night and um, and said, Paul, I, I thought it was some friend just taking the piss, so I nearly told him to fuck off. But, <laughs> but fortunately, I didn't. And uh, and I suddenly realised it was Brad. And uh, and I thought there and then I should have said, Oh, for God's sake, bring Greedo back now. He uh, he deserves an extra airing. But I think he's going to get an extra airing in um, in. Uh, in um, the Han Solo movie, but uh, but that won't be me. But that's fine because I've uh, I've retired now, and it should be someone newer and more athletic, certainly. Yeah, it does seem to me that 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 would be a missed opportunity if they didn't uh, have Greedo in there. Yeah, you know, given he's... that there's that sort of familiarity, they know each other, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he yeah. was the nearest to actually getting rid of Han Solo, wasn't he? If only he'd shot first. If only he'd done that, Jamie, it would have been my franchise entirely. <laughs> I would have run off with the whole thing. It would Who have been... Who knows what could have happened. Greedo and Princess Leia, Greedo on the top penthouse of the Death Star. 
Greedo hand in hand with Darth Vader. I think it would have been a different movie. I think there's a comic series there. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that, Paul. Jamie, it was lovely. Take care. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye bye. Hope you enjoyed that uh, nice chat with Paul. I had back in March 2018. I enjoyed it. He's a he's a fun guy, and he doesn't take it too seriously. And uh, yeah, like many of those guys that starred in that original film, it is uh, interesting to me that it's become a bit of a pension fund for them, going to all the conventions. Maybe not in 2020, but hopefully uh, for more years to come. For next episode, as I said before, hoping to speak to Ben Dimmock, stuntman and stunt coordinator. Um, also trying to line up some other guests at the moment but do you know send me your suggestions if you've got anybody you think might fit the bill of the Film Mentories podcast then do let me know you can do that via my Film Mentories Facebook page by leaving a comment on filmmentories.com by talking to me on Twitter at Jamie SWB and you can find Film Mentories on Instagram as well do give me a shout um, and yeah let me know who you think would be interesting Meanwhile, I'm going to continue to delve into IMDb and see if I can find some some more guests myself. I hope you can join me next time. And thanks again for everybody who's supporting me on Patreon. If you can support me, patreon.com forward slash Jamie Benning. A dollar, two dollars, anything you can contribute really does help me get these things done. And thanks, of course, to all of you who've been in touch to say that you're enjoying the podcast. It really does bring a smile to my face and makes this thing a whole lot easier. Okay, take care, be good, be nice to each other, 